Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why you have tiny rocks in your ears, why you may prefer music by artists who have a similar personality to you, and how chemotherapy began as a chemical weapon. Let's satisfy some curiosity. You've probably heard that your inner ear helps you keep your balance. But have you ever wondered exactly how? Well, it turns out that your inner ear contains some precise machinery to help you keep tabs on your place in space. That machinery uses fluids and gels and piles of tiny rocks. You have tiny rocks in your ears that help you detect motion. This is one of those I literally didn't believe you stories when you told me about it. (laughs) When I learned this, I tweeted about it in all caps. It's just wild to me. And I don't know why I didn't know this. I don't know why it's possible. (laughs) What are they doing in there? We're going to answer all those questions. But oh, my gosh, this was mind blowing, ear blowing. (laughs) Aha. I can't wait. So your inner ear is located behind your eardrum and it's made up of two parts. The cochlea is a snail-shaped organ about the size of your fingernail that helps you hear. The other part is called the vestibule, and it makes up your balance or vestibular system. None of these parts of the inner ear are empty. They're all filled with a fluid called endolymph. The vestibule itself contains two parts. The semicircular canals measure your head's position in space. Those are three fluid-filled rings that extend from the vestibule one each to detect direction from side to side, forward and back, and up and down. You're like a little airplane. The vestibule also contains two tiny sacs that detect movement or acceleration. The utricle measures it in the horizontal plane, and the saccule handles the vertical. And how they do it is pretty wild. Each one contains a patch of sensory cells called the macula, which is covered by a jiggly gelatinous layer, which itself is covered by otoliths. That's Greek for ear stones. The whole setup is sort of like a waterbed covered with gravel. If you tip your head, the heft of the stones makes the gel layer slosh in the opposite direction. That triggers little hair-like cells connected to nerves, and this tells your brain how to balance your body. So yeah, you sense motion because of thousands of tiny rocks on a tiny waterbed inside your head. Sometimes those little rocks can get dislodged and tumble their way into the semicircular canals. That causes the dizzying sensation of vertigo, which can be debilitating. To fix it, doctors just try to guide the rocks back into place with a series of head movements called the Epley Maneuver. It's a lot like those games where you tilt a board to roll a marble through a maze, but it's not a surefire fix. It's successful in about 80% of patients but about half of them have their vertigo return eventually. But even without treatment, the condition usually clears up on its own after a few months. So the next time you feel the thrill of a speeding roller coaster or dizziness from a spin through a field, remember that you have thousands of tiny rocks to thank for it. Okay, Ashley, let's play a game having to do with music. You can play along at home, and it's going to be pretty cool what this game tells you about yourself. Whose music do you prefer, Radiohead or Dave Matthews Band? Mm, Radiohead. All right. Marvin Gaye or David Bowie? Uh, I'm going to go with Marvin Gaye. All right. And Britney Spears or Nora Jones? Oh, that's a tough one. I loved Nora Jones in high school, 
but I'm kind of coming around to Britney Spears. Let's say Nora Jones. Okay, so Radiohead, Marvin Gaye, Nora Jones. Got it. All right, well, you might think that I asked you those questions because it might reveal something about your taste in music, but it could actually say something about your personality, too. A new study suggests that people prefer music by artists whose public personalities are most similar to their own. So, Ashley, in your case, that would mean that since you chose Radiohead, you're high in openness. Nice. Marvin Gaye would suggest that you're low in neuroticism. And Nora Jones would suggest that you're high in agreeableness. Cool. That's not bad. Yeah, those are good things. And the scientists behind this study called this the self-congruity effect of music. Self-congruity describes the tendency for a person to seek out the people and things that match their own self-concept. Like, maybe your friend's personalities are like yours. Or maybe you bought the car that felt most like you. Here, it means that people prefer music by artists who project a persona that matches how those people see themselves. Researchers conducted three separate studies of more than 80,000 people to figure this out. And they looked at a bunch of different factors. First, they took persona ratings of the 50 most popular musicians on Facebook. They did that in two ways, by asking fans to describe those musicians' personas and by using machine learning to predict those musicians' personas from their lyrics. Then they used data from a previous study where Facebook users took personality tests and allowed researchers access to their Facebook profiles, including the artists' pages they had liked. That let them compare the personalities of music fans to the public personas of their favorite artists. And the results showed that, yes, people tended to prefer the music of artists with personalities that seemed to match their own. People high in openness tended to like artists with complex music, like David Bowie and Radiohead. Those high in conscientiousness liked mellow and unpretentious music from artists like Marvin Gaye and Carrie Underwood. Extroverts preferred pop and hip-hop, like that of Justin Bieber and 50 Cent. People high in agreeableness liked mellower artists like John Mayer and Nora Jones. And people high in neuroticism preferred metal and hard rock, Think Evanescence and Ozzy Osbourne. The researchers say that what they found is a huge advance in music research. Their findings show that musical preferences are driven by more than just whether the music sounds good or not. Instead, psychological, social, and group dynamics are all at play when it comes to the music we love. And I will say, I do really admire Axl Rose. I see that rebel in him. I mean, you're not exactly low in neuroticism, Cody. <laughs> I love you, <ya>. but we both know that. <laughs> we both do. Wait, but your music preference said that you're low in it. So I do like Marvin Gaye and David Bowie at different times. So maybe it's just a mood thing. I don't know. I don't know either. But yes, I appreciate you calling me out on that. <laughs> totally fair. I'll own it. If you've ever been through the harrowing, nauseating process of chemotherapy, this next fact may not come as a surprise. The first chemotherapy began as a chemical weapon. Get ready to learn about the strange origins of this life-saving treatment. Cancer has plagued humans since the beginnings of medicine, and for most of history, it was a death sentence. Invasive surgery was often the only treatment, and the cancer would usually just return. So when scientists discovered that certain chemicals could target cancerous cells, what came to be known as chemotherapy, 
it was pretty miraculous. And ironically, the first modern cancer-treating drugs came from the opposite of a miracle, mustard gas. During World War I, two American doctors named Helen and Edward Krumhar began studying the long-term health effects of mustard gas and discovered its most heinous effect. It decimated victims' bone marrow. Bone marrow produces the body's blood cells, and these victims' white blood cells had been hit particularly hard. It seemed that the main ingredient in mustard gas could target and kill these specific cells. In 1919, the pair wrote an academic paper that was ignored by the medical community, which, understandably, was preoccupied with the war. But 20 years later, two Yale doctors rediscovered the Krumhars paper. The world was about to break out in war again, and these doctors had been tasked with developing an antidote to chemical weapons, specifically to nitrogen mustard, a recent variation on mustard gas. That was when they came across the findings that the chemical targeted bone marrow and white blood cells. Why was that so important? Well, leukemia and lymphoma are both cancers caused by mutations in white blood cells. If mustard gas targets healthy white blood cells, it could probably kill cancerous white blood cells, too. Amazingly, they got permission to test nitrogen mustard on a cancer patient. The whole thing was kept top secret. In the trial, a patient with lymphoma known only as JD was given a drug they ominously labeled as Substance X. After just four days of treatment, JD's tumor shrank. It didn't save his life, but it showed that nitrogen mustard could be used to treat lymphoma. JD was the first cancer patient to receive chemotherapy. After the war, researchers learned that nitrogen mustards enter white blood cells and bond to DNA, which makes that DNA impossible for the cell to use and triggers its death. This knowledge allowed nitrogen mustards to be refined into safer and more effective cancer drugs, some of which are still in use today. Chemotherapy is an unpleasant, blunt instrument that will hopefully be eclipsed by more effective treatments. But there's no denying that it saved countless lives. Let's recap today's takeaways, starting with the fact that you have tiny rocks in your ears that help you detect motion. If they're dislodged, you can experience vertigo, and a treatment for that is actually a series of head movements to get the rocks back to the right place. In Credible. Rock over London, rock on Chicago, Wheaties, Breakfast of Champions. One person will get that reference. So let's continue. <laughs> well, we also learned that you may prefer music by musicians whose public personalities are like yours. And this is big for music research because it shows that we're affected by lots of different things when it comes to what we enjoy, like social and group dynamics. This immediately makes me think of the comparison between Taylor Swift who just released a very soft, introspective kind of acoustic album, and Phoebe Bridger, who also released a soft, introspective album about a month previous. They're both blonde female singers, and their albums are very similar, but I feel a much stronger adherence to Phoebe Bridger than I do to Taylor Swift. And I think that comes down to personality. I mean, to me anyway, Phoebe Bridger is sort of more raw and flawed and kind of silly. And Taylor Swift isn't really a girl I would have hung out with in high school. I'm sure she's a girl many people would have hung out in high school. Just she and I are different. That's especially weird because I thought you were a cat person. I am a cat person. Well. What? Taylor Swift was in Cats. 
I'm not a cat's person, Cody. That's you. Oh, I get it. Okay. You're a cat person. I'm a cat's person. Exactly. Okay. I feel like this was a real breakthrough. <laughs> I like have never really known a lot about any of the bands I listen to. Like in high school, I thought Led Zeppelin was the name of a person. <laughs> I couldn't have named any members of Guns N' Roses besides Slash and Axel until I'd been listening to them for like five years. But of the musicians I listen to, the one guy whose personality I actually do know is Axel. And uh, this checks out when it comes to that. I like that he's a rebel, very free thinking guy. Doesn't care if he shows up on stage an hour and a half late, which he no longer does, by the way. A little sad, though. Last Sunday, I was actually supposed to see Guns N' Roses at Wrigley Field. <sighs> I've seen him live before. It is the best live performance a human being could probably see in their lifetime. And I was a little bummed. But, you know, certainly not the only thing to be rescheduled during this whole mess. So uh, looking forward to seeing him next year. Fingers crossed. <laughs> and we also learned that chemotherapy started as mustard gas. A weapon. In editing this, I learned a lot about what mustard gas does to a person. It's not a quick death. It can take people months to die. It is horrifying. I'm so glad we stopped using it. Yeah. And chemotherapy has done a lot of good for a lot of people. So thank goodness. That's right. Today's stories were written by Cameron Duke and Kelsey Donk and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Today's episode was produced and edited by Cody Goff. Go listen to Sweet Child of Mine. You know it's the best opening guitar riff in music history. Don't at me. <laughs> then join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. <laughs> <laughs>